0: Let us pray again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for your Son, Jesus Christ, and his gospel. and We thank you for the understanding that you have already given us. And now we ask again for clarity and understanding of your gospel. According to John, may you grant hearing to your people. Uh, These who are here and those who shall listen from afar, uh, Lord, be merciful to them and show them the things of Christ. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John 8, 30-36. John 8, 30-36. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free... You shall be free indeed. The title of our sermon is verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Or you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Or if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. These are invitations to the gospel. There's a lot to talk about in this section. This chapter of John 8 is just full of glorious things from the mouth of the Lord. But there's also a lot of understanding, a lot of teaching of important theology about salvation from the mouth of Jesus in the verses that we've just read. Men have opinions and they have traditions about salvation and what they think or what they want salvation to be like. And no matter how high sounding their opinions are, they are just men's opinions. They may be high sounding, but they are high sounding nothing. They do not profit anyone. They do not serve anyone spiritually. A sinner cannot be saved by anything that another sinner does for them. A sinner cannot be saved because of who they are, because of their ancestry. There's nothing that commends you to salvation that can be found in you. There's no man who can make another man a Christian. And that is good news. A lot of people think it's bad news when I say you have no power to make me or anybody else a Christian. We think it's bad news, but it's glorious news because you have no power to make anybody a Christian. So your only hope is in the one who is able to make everyone who is already not a Christian a Christian. So our salvation is in the one who is able to make us Christians, the one who, when he gives his salvation, it cannot be undone. Because if salvation is up to stand, and what he has told me to do, I can lose it. And chances, I will lose it today if it's from stand. <laughs> so no one is made a Christian. By water baptism, this is common teaching. A lot of people are going to their deathbeds thinking and holding to that as their hope of salvation. And no one is made a Christian by being raised in the church. And no one is made a Christian by their parents. Until my children begin to love my good neighbor, my good Samaritan, and talk about my Jesus as their own Jesus. Then Jesus remains my own Jesus. But my prayer and the prayer of every parent is that God would cause them to make their Jesus their own Jesus. To pray to God to draw them to Christ. So our hope is in the sovereignty of God and our hope is in the grace of God because he's sovereign, his grace never fails for the ones that he intends to save. And the beauty of that is even if you die before your children become Christians, because God is sovereign and God is not dead, he's still able to save them after you're gone. So there's hope there and it's glorious hope. So God may still take your children through their own wilderness journeys. They each have their own stories. They are going to go through their own wilderness before the Lord turns them around. Okay? So hold lightly to those things the Lord will accomplish his will. They will not be lost. He will take them to the innkeeper. He will keep them. Salvation is particular. It's very. Particular, It is very individualistic. It's particular redemption. It has names of people. And all those names, those people who have those names will be saved. In spite of themselves, they shall come to Christ. So it is important for us. I talked to a friend of mine recently and she just was in tears because of her son. Her son finished college a few years ago and he's just not heeding anything about the gospel at all. He's just going his other way. And she was telling me that they have done everything that they can do as parents to teach and raise him according to the knowledge of Christ, but he doesn't want it. And, And she was just feeling beat down and helpless. And I reminded her and I said, your hope is that God is sovereign, because if He is sovereign, He will take him down. so praise the Lord for that. but it is important for us to affirm that we are not saved because of the church that we attend or attended. We are not saved by what theology that we preach. we preach the Gospel of grace not to be saved, but because that's what God teaches about how salvation works. We teach this gospel because that's the gospel that saved people teach. They know that salvation is by grace alone and nothing else. And if God does not deem our salvation, we are doomed. There's nothing that we could ever do but praise the Lord. He deemed that we should be saved in Christ. He chose us. He chose us. And the Jews, this is where I'm going. We have Jews here, they're talking to Jesus. They thought they had automatic entry into God's salvation because they were physical descendants of the great patriarch, Abraham. So they associated their salvation and their standing before God to their lineage, to their blood. But salvation requires more than blood. It requires more than racial lines. Salvation requires the grace of God. Salvation cannot be passed on. It cannot be inherited like a trust fund. God has to give it to whomever he wants. And so to the Jews who thought that they had automatic entry into heaven, John the Baptist even said to them in Luke 3, Luke 3, 7 to 8, when he was baptizing the multitude, he said, To the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, he said, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these very stones. Just some granite rock. The one that Ginny was going to use for a counter. God is raising children to God. And Apostle John would to that same end say in John 1, 12 to 13, which you guys already know, he says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And of course, the Minions will stop there. They'll say, look. Those who received him, those who believed in him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. But that's not where it ends. It ends in the next verse. And the next verse says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that takes away anything that may be found in man. And the salvation now only stands on the will and grace of God. Now, there are many who profess to believe in Jesus. They all have the outward profession of religion. They do all the duties of religion, very pious. They are engaged in all kinds of activities that in their mind are supposed to carry God's favor. They get consumed in duty and they mistake their duty of religion for salvation. And that is a problem. It's a problem that the Jews had also. And because of their duty, they missed Christ. They were so bound to Judaism that they failed to see who Christ was. The duty of religion can easily be turned into a work. For there is a very thin line between work and grace. And that is why the gospel has to constantly be preached. And you have to be reminded so that you may keep your hands off of the ark. The ark of the Lord is salvation. God wants you to keep your hands off of it. Or else he'll kill you. And we have some of these in our text. who were professing to believe in Jesus. Like many today, but when Jesus tells them the terms of salvation, they don't want to hear it. And Jesus is going to give a test that authenticates his true followers. He is going to distinguish fecal faith from true saving faith. He has been on this road before with these people in Jerusalem. The people were following him because of the miracles. And John would record for us in John 2 verses 23 to 25 and say, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And that's not a good statement. And had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in man. So he knew that they were unbelievers. In spite of their profession. In spite of the outward profession of him. And in John 6, we have an encounter of Jesus with the fickle followers. Who were seeking him for the loaves of bread. You know that crowd. When did you get here? Jesus, how did you get here? We're looking for you. We're looking for breakfast. We're looking for pancakes. And this is what John recorded for us in John 6, verses 60 to 68. We're just building the background to understand what is happening because it's the same cloud. It's the same cloud of people. So John 6, verses 60 to 68 says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, "That this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus has been saying all kinds of things, but essentially all Jesus was saying was how God actually saves people. And all the arguments that he had, whether you read Matthew, Luke, Mark, John, with the Jews, came down to how does God save sinners? That was the issue. And Jesus is not is not and was not interested in building a mega church. Jesus is not interested in numbers. As many have been mad to believe in our day and age. They say, well, your ministry is successful when you have 20,000 people, 25,000 people, and you're collecting $600,000 every service. Jesus is only interested in genuine believers. Those that the father gave to him and he knows them by name and that is why he reduced everything to where two or more are gathered in my name, there I'll be also. Jesus' church can just have two people and that's good for him. It may not be good by the standards of the world, but Jesus is happy with that. He's okay with that. And so I have people who ask me and say, so how many people do you have at your church? I'm like, one, I don't have a church. I didn't pay for anybody's. I don't have a church. The church belongs to Christ. No one has a church. But the thinking is salvation and God's blessing in ministry is about the numbers. Salvation is not about numbers. It is only about those that Christ died for. It is about saying the truth about God and Christ. And if God is pleased with what we are doing, is pleased with the gospel that we are teaching and sharing with these people, then God is pleased with me, and that's good enough. But I need grace to come to that understanding because I'm a sinner. I need God to constantly remind me that, oh, by the way, what you are doing is good enough. I'm pleased with that. So only those that God appointed to come will come and hear what we are teaching. And they will come because God brings them. No one comes by themselves. God is the one who grants them to come and he grants them hearing. And when they hear the gospel, they're like, these are the ways of life. This person is really saying what I need to hear. I need to hear about this Jesus. And this is how things work. So our call is to continue planting and watering and preaching Christ and preaching the word of Christ in and out of season. And to as many as he will bring to Berean or to as many as we will meet outside this building, they only come because he brings them. And I sincerely hope that Christ has actually called me to preach him because this is difficult work to do. And to continuously come every week without the fanfare, uh, stand still my smoke machine, <laughs> without the fanfare, without the entertainment that is now part and parcel of what is called church these days. What do you have to entertain people with? You have to entertain and become a celebrity. But you can never be a celebrity if you are preaching Christ. You can never. You can never. Because you're always exalting him. You're always exalting him. And I remember the story that I was told at the conference by uh, Elder Spots. And he said, Elder Ward is said to have pulled a preacher at the conference from the pulpit. And he said, you can't preach. And the reason that he gave was because the man, when he went into the pulpit, he went running. He just had his Bible and went up running into the pulpit. And the elder Lord called him and said, no, you can't do that. You got to have butterflies when you go up there because you are in the presence of God and you only have one audience and Christ is your audience. All these other people, you don't know what they're going to hear, but Christ hears everything. He is your audience first and foremost. And I pray that all the preachers who claim to be preachers of the gospel would know that, that their audience is one, is God. So to our text, verse 30. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So as the Lord was saying all these things about himself and the Father, we are told by John that many believed in him. But how did these many believe in him? Did they believe That he is the son of God, the only hope of salvation. Because if you are believing in Christ, you have to believe that. If you are believing anything less than that, you are not a believer in Christ. In spite of all the other things that you may say about Jesus. What is it that they believed about Jesus? They believed nothing spiritually important about Jesus. Because they denied all the claims Of who Jesus was. It is these very people. That in Jesus view. Were slaves to sin. As we are going to learn. These very people. That said they believed in Jesus. Just a few verses down. Jesus is going to say. You are slaves to sin. And it is the very same people. The very same crowd. That were seeking to kill him. Because according to Jesus. His word had no place in them. He says, my word has no place in you in spite of your pretensions to believe in me. I know I do not need any testimony from you about you. And it is these same people that Jesus would later in the conversation call the children of the devil. These are the same people that Jesus, in verse 55 of John 8, would call liars. And these are the ones who are attempting to kill him who is sinless. Because Jesus is going to say, what sin did I commit? Is there anything that I did wrong? Show it to me. And it is so with many in the church today who proclaim to believe in Jesus. And yet as soon as they hear the true gospel, the gospel of God's sovereign grace in salvation, the gospel of God's Sovereign election. The gospel that says. Men have no free will. To choose Christ. They get mad. In John 6. People turned away from Jesus. After the Lord had given them. A teaching of salvation. He said. You have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. And that did not sit well with them. They are thinking. Oh Jesus. You are going to make us cannibals. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? No, 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 no. Jesus was not giving them his physical flesh to eat. Jesus was just giving them the terms of salvation. He is saying this is how God saves sinners. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And Jesus says to them most assuredly, And say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. So what was Jesus saying to them? Jesus was laying down the condition of salvation, eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood and not in the wafers. It is not eating communion bread and drinking wine. No one is served by eating the elements. Eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus is figurative language, which means believing in him and appropriating the righteousness that is through his blood, through his flesh, being punished on the cross and being united to him as food and drink are eaten and are absorbed and assimilated into the body and making one body with the person. So when you eat the body of Christ and, and you drink the blood of Christ, that's the union language. Jesus saying, when you believe in me, you become part of me. But here Jesus' criteria for serving faith. Jesus says serving faith is enduring faith. It perseveres in truth to the end. It is a persevering faith, but it perseveres in truth and not in falsehood. Verse 31 of John 8. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Indeed, to abide is one of Jesus' favorite words in the book of John. And it is going to come strongly in John 15 in the teaching of the vine. To abide is to remain. It is to stay in. It is to continue in. To continue hoarding to the words, to the teaching of Jesus. It is union language. And without union, as we discussed Without union with Christ in election, in life, in death, in resurrection, there's no life for you. Okay, There's no salvation for you. So let's hear what Jesus says in John 15, verse 4 to 6 on the abiding. Abiding. Because he says, if you don't abide in my word, there's no life for you. John 15, 4 to 6. He says, abide in me and I in you. Bend. Who is he that abides in Christ? It is the one who obeys the word of Christ. Obeys. But how do you obey the word of Christ? You obey Christ by faith. You obey Christ by believing the gospel. That is how you obey Christ. And it is the one who continues to hold to the word's Of Jesus as true and precious. The gospel of grace as true and precious. And will continue to hold to it in spite of opposition, in spite of trouble, in spite of difficult circumstances of life, in spite of persecution, which I think is on the horizon. Persecution is headed to our shores. It's coming. And we have to remain. We have to keep abiding in Christ. And John, Apostle John, would let her write and say in 2nd John 1, verse 9 to 11, very important to this teaching. The Apostle writes and says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. See what John is saying. He says, transgression He's not talking about transgressing the law. He says transgression by not abiding in the doctrine of Christ. And the doctrine of Christ is the gospel of grace. And he says, he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the father and the son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So the evil deeds of these people is in that they are not abiding in the doctrine of the gospel of grace. So anyone who does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, according to John, does not have God. They may give a tenth and may have well-behaved kids and may have a huge church, but if they do not preach the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace in Christ alone, they do not have God because you can only preach that when you have the Holy Spirit of God. They may have been a professing Christian for the past 50 years or 120 years. They may think they have the power to forgive sin, and dress in nice and elegant church clothes or robes. But all that is fleshly, and the flesh profits nothing unless they bring the doctrine of Christ. What matters is, do you get to the end believing in Christ and his gospel, if they do not hold to the person and nature of Christ as God and man they have not God. If they do not hold to the gospel of Christ and him crucified as the only hope of salvation, they have not God. They are just some religious folk who love the scent of burning incense and the sight of burning candles. Brother Robert, bring some candles (laughs) first. Next week. Sister Becker, you may have have some incense at your house. I'm going to give you some money. Yeah. yeah, Bring those. We need to set up some candles. And John says, if anyone is opposed to the doctrine of Christ but professes to be a Christian, then do not associate with them as brethren. As brethren. See the difference? You don't associate with them as brethren. Do not receive them even into your house as believers, but as unbelievers. And so, serving faith is an enduring faith in the doctrine of Christ, in the gospel of Christ, because all those who are in Christ are kept by the power of God through faith, according to Apostle Peter in First 1 Peter 1, 1.5. So the one who endures is going to endure in the truth of the gospel. The gospel, again, is the doctrine of Christ. And that is how we measure whether one actually is a believer or not. What doctrine are they bringing about Christ? So serving faith endures to the end because it is founded and rests on the truth of the person and work of Christ. And God the Father sustains that testimony in you. He is the one who sustains it. Otherwise, left to yourself. You'll be going to that club tonight. <laughs> there are many of them. I'll give you addresses. And I have a GPS that I'm not using. That I'll... The writer of Hebrews would also affirm the same teaching. And say in Hebrews 3.14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. See the pattern. A lot of people, they read this and they're saying, you are going to hold it to the end by your own power. No. If you have to hold your testimony to the end by your own power, you won't make it to the end. It's God who keeps you To the end. He, as we learn from Peter, we are kept by the power of God through faith to the end. So it is not the beginning that matters, but the end. That means you and I have to hold steadfastly to the gospel of grace right to the end because that is your only confidence. And that is why you need to be exhorted daily, lest you be hardened into unbelief by the deceitfulness of sin, according to the writer of Hebrews. And this is actually connected. I never thought about this, but it's actually connected to the parable of the soils. But Jesus is saying, the way that I know that you believe in me is if you stay, you abide, you remain in my doctrine. And in the parable of the soils, we have four soils. And in the three soils, the word did not abide. It did not remain. We're just going to read that, just to bring things to your remembrance. Luke 8, 5-8. to eight. Luke 8, 5-8. to eight. A sower went out to sow his seed. And this is the parable. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, And the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on on rock. And as soon as it sprang up. It withered away. Because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up with it. And choked it. But others fell on good ground. Sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he has said these things he cried. He who has ears to hear. Let him hear. So we have four soils, but there was this good ground that endured the season all the way to the end of harvesting. So it bore fruit. The good soil endured to the end and produced fruit. But this is the problem in the understanding of fruit. A lot of people, they put fruit in the context of The things that they actually do. When you are bearing fruit, you are continuing to abide in the gospel. To believe in Christ to the end is a fruit of the gospel. You have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is all work that God does in you. And it's going to happen. It's not going to fail. But listen to this. To those that were given to Christ by the Father. The Holy Spirit says in Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 12, but sometimes this one area of assurance, and a lot of people struggle with it. I I talk to a lot of people. They struggle with these statements of saying, if you hold your confidence to the end, they are now thinking salvation is about them. And they start to stumble. And they start looking for things to hold on to for confidence. No. The writer of Hebrews says, In Hebrews 6, 9 to 12, he says, he has a different group of people in mind. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, because the writer of Hebrews has been saying some very hard things. You know that Hebrews chapter 6 is a hard saying. And he says, you have these people who have tested the gospel and they have fallen away. But this is one group of people. This is this is the group that are described by the other three soils. But we have better hope for you, this other group. Better hope for things that accompany salvation. Verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So God is saying, keep plugging in the gospel for your own sake. When you continue to plug in the gospel, you get full assurance of how God actually saves. So he says we are confident of better things for you. Yes, there's this group who are falling away, but this other group, you, we have better things. Yes, things that accompany salvation, that God, he who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's what is being said. And so, even for myself and for you, my prayer always is. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter where you end up being. Continue in the same diligence of looking for Christ. Learning the things of Christ until to the end. And that you do not become sluggish. Become slow and lazy but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So this is how you don't get sluggish. It's faith and patience. Faith in what? In the gospel. Faith in the promises of the gospel. So by faith, we inherit the promises. But by patience, we endure. We remain to the end when the promises will be dispensed to us in their fullness when our faith shall be sight. Okay, listen to this. Consequences of abiding in Christ, verse 32. Jesus says, if you abide in me, this is what is going to happen. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Even all the sinners who don't even know anything about Christ, they know this. And and, and when they say that, they're trying to... Something spiteful. They're trying to get at you. Oh, we shall not the truth. See the beggar. And the truth shall set you free. <laughs> but Jesus is saying the condition of you being set free is if you abide in Him. One can not just say they believe in Jesus without abiding in Him. And you abide in Christ by believing the gospel. The ones who abide in him, Jesus says, shall know the truth in his fullness. Knowing the truth is not a one-time thing. You just don't sit one time and say, oh, I know about Jesus. So that's good enough. You don't just eat one meal and say, oh, I'm good for the rest of my life. It doesn't work like that. You have to always continue. We had breakfast in the morning and we're going to have lunch and we're going to have dinner and we're going to repeat the cycle. And that's what Jesus is saying. You continue to abide in his gospel. You continue to hear it. Even if it's something that you had yesterday, even if it's the same Big Mac that you ate yesterday, you still have it this afternoon. So your journey from the time of conversion is you were initiated into the truth at conversion. And then you grow in the knowledge of Christ till according to Apostle Paul in Ephesians, we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that has not yet happened, so we need to keep abiding and growing in the things of Christ. I'm not going to read this, but you may want to go and read Second Peter 1, verse 1 to 5. He also teaches the same doctrine. Okay, So knowing the truth is a sign of abiding in Christ. And continuing to hold to it. You can't continue to abide in something that you don't like. You can't keep buying carrots if you hate them. You're going to have a, I mean, the whole refrigerator is full of carrots. Like, what are you doing with all those carrots? You don't eat them. But if you keep buying the carrots and you keep eating them, you receive the benefit of the nutrition that they give. Your eyes get healthier and you have better vision. And so when you abide in Christ by continuing to hear the gospel, learning and consuming all the things of Christ, your vision of Christ gets better and your faith grows. And when you listen to messages, you can tell as soon as the preacher starts preaching, you're like, there's no nutrition for me here. If I can, I am going to live. Once you abide in the things of Christ, it's very easy to listen to what people are saying. You're like, this man has nothing for me. So to know the truth is not just head knowledge of the truth. Jesus says, knowing the truth causes you to believe that which God says about him, which the Jews were denying. It causes you to believe the true gospel. You begin to see Christ More and more. And that is how we get our freedom. Free from all the things that bind you to self-righteousness. To your own self-righteousness. And to the self-righteousness of others. Or bind you to the programs of other sinners and to fear. People are bound by fear. Why? Because they are not abiding in the freedom of the gospel. They are trying to drag you back in. That they may bind you to their programs, to the law. But Jesus says, the only way that you're going to get freedom is if you know the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And Jesus is the truth. And one cannot abide in truth and not know Christ. And one cannot be in Christ and not have freedom and one cannot be in Christ and continue to be ignorant of the true gospel. Jesus says the truth shall set it free. Truth true faith has earth shattering consequences. The true faith, the gospel is amazing in the freedom that it gives. It is so empowering in that There's nothing that will ever condemn you, no matter how much you screw up. That's a scandal. Jesus says, knowing the truth delivers you from slavery. Jesus is saying, holding to the teaching of the gospel does two things for you. This is very important. It does two things for you. Number one, it proves the genuineness of faith. So, how do you know that your faith is genuine? You hold to the gospel of grace. Number one, that's according to Jesus. And the other consequence of that is it produces freedom. It produces freedom. Judaism, according to my reading, was understood to teach that a man was free who had studied the law. And Jesus comes and he counters that. And says, no, 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 no. You don't get freedom from the law. You get freedom from coming and abiding in me. So Jesus says, there's no freedom outside grace and truth. There's no freedom outside the one who is the life, who is the way, who is the truth. And if Jesus is offering freedom by the knowledge of him or his teaching, then he assumes slavery to everybody who is not in him, to everybody who does not abide in his teaching. And the slavery that Jesus is going to teach shortly is beyond the radar of the Jews because they're going to argue and say, we have never been under any bondage. So they are not understanding the kind of slavery that Jesus Is saying, and many people even now claim to be free who are not free. What they consider to be freedom is not freedom according to God. There is no freedom outside believing in Christ Jesus. And so the Jews were quick to counter and say, not so fast, Jesus. (laughs) Don't even get this freedom discussion going on. We have never been in slavery. To anyone, liars. So the reason why they said they never been enslaved to anybody was in verse thirty three. They answered him and said, "We are Abraham's descendants and have never been, never, never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free?" And of course, they are lying through their teeth. They have been in bondage to Rome. Even as they are speaking, they are in bondage to Rome. They were in Egypt for 430 years. They were in Babylon. They were taken by Assyria, by Syria, by Greece. And still, they come to Jesus on their hind legs and say, No, Jesus, we have never been in slavery to anybody. And (sighs) it's crazy. Just before the crucifixion of Jesus, they said, we have no other king but Caesar. And yet by the same mouth, they are saying, we've never been in subjection to anybody. But they invoke the name of Abraham and say, because we are physical descendants of Abraham, we essentially have never been spiritually enslaved. They are bringing up a spiritual argument. There was some understanding by the Jews that since they were descendants of Abraham, descendants of Abraham could not be bound, regardless of their political or economic circumstances. So they are trying to build a spiritual argument against Jesus. They, as Jews, thought themselves as the sons of the kingdom. They always thought that they had the... The covenants, all the covenants that God gave to Abraham all the way through Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all those things, they belong to them. So they're like, no, we are the sons of the kingdom. If these Gentiles, if these Greeks who are not free, but Jesus comes in Matthew eight twelve and says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. They will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is where we are. The theology of the Jews, they are convinced that they are the sons of the kingdom, that they are well men who need no physician, and that they can see and that they are free and so do not need to be set free by anybody. Isn't what a lot of people are saying. They don't need Jesus. They don't need the gospel because they don't need Jesus. They are free people. They are not sick people. But the Jews argue and say we have been free because of Abraham. But Jesus says, Abraham does not save anyone. He looked to my day. (laughs) So it is Jesus who saved Abraham and he is their only hope of salvation. Their sense of privilege blinds them to the truth of the gospel. There are some people who are so beautiful. I'm telling the truth. That you look at them. And you think, surely, God has to serve this one. This person is so beautiful, they can't go to hell. And unfortunately, they too think the same. They think they are so cute and so rich to go to hell. And they believe it. Look at me. <laughs> That's the folly of sin. People think they are rich or they are healthy because of their Goodness, because of their planning, because of their own diligence, because of some activity, some physical activity, or because of some diet, some yoga class. (laughs) You need to activate your yoga membership. (laughs) And the Jews are living under this deception, strong slavery, but they do not know that until Jesus comes and teaches them. But the Jews are offended. By Jesus' statement. And so they respond to Jesus with offense and with ugliness. And you can see it, you can hear it in their response. Because they say, how can you say you'll be made free? What are you talking about? How can you say that? Where do you get the nerve to say such a ridiculous thing? (laughs) That's what they say. They're mad. But Jesus answered them in verse 34. And that tells you that we're almost done. But last time we had one sermon from one verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So Jesus changes their understanding of slavery. Jesus defines for them what it is that he is talking about. He was not talking about political or economic bondage. He was talking spiritual things and he uses his verily formula the truly truly most assuredly formula of emphasis and says truly he who commits he who practices he who does sin is a slave of sin so jesus introduces the bondage of the will a doctrine that is not understood by many who profess to preach the gospel, and by many who profess to be Christians. The one, according to Jesus, who commits sin is showing that they are not free. They are in bondage to sin, and sin is their master. They are answering to the demands and commands of their master. They are doing sin's bidding. So according to Jesus and according to the teaching of the New Testament, sin is a power, is a power that has a throne. And as a king on the throne, it commands It issues, commands to all those who are under it. Okay. And all who are under it, obey it. And unless one is born again and is put under a different throne, a different master, the throne of grace, sin remains their master. And that's why the New Testament will say, now come boldly to the throne of grace and not to the throne of sin. The throne of grace that you may find help in the time of need. And so the issue is not slavery to Rome. And if you are willing to hear it, Jesus would even have gone and said, Caesar too is a slave to sin. The Jews are slaves to sin because they are about to do the desires of sin. The desires of their father, the devil, to try and murder Jesus. That's where the conversation is going to go. So according to Jesus, the ultimate problem, I know you're getting tired. We have to go and listen to this later on when I'm done. But we have to finish it and I'm almost close to finishing The ultimate problem with men, according to Jesus, is not their difficult political or economic conditions, but it is their inability to recognize the cause of human misery and their inability to remove themselves from the power and dominion of sin. That is Jesus' theology. And he says this is even a much bigger problem than all the other things that we think are important. And Jesus says, unless sin is removed, human misery shall have no end. And in hell, sin is not removed and human misery shall have no end there. So there is no political system or economic system that removes human misery. It may temporarily provide some relief. But sooner or later, its weaknesses are going to show. And that is why as Christians, we have to walk circumspectly about the affairs of the world. We are not to be so consumed by politics like we are ignorant people. This is not the kingdom that we are waiting for. We have another kingdom that's coming. An everlasting kingdom that is ruled by righteousness. A kingdom of life where there's no misery. So Jesus only has the permanent solution to human misery. Okay, but this is very glorious theology from the Lord here. The Jews think themselves to be born free, and that's a term that we use in Zimbabwe a lot, and and we use it to refer to all those who were born after independence. If your birthday is after 1980 in Zimbabwe, you're called a born free. And born free people are spoiled people. There are a lot of negative connotations that go with that. Okay, So the the Jews think themselves to be born free as sons of Abraham. But the truth of the matter is that they were born as slaves of sin. And as slaves, they did not have the right of inheritance. So we go to the last two verses, verse 35 and 36. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus applies his theology of their slavery to sin and wants them to know that they are nothing but slaves. And he strikes at the heart of their confidence and sense of entitlement and privilege. And he says, As slaves, their rights cannot be maintained by just being physical descendants of Abraham. And because of their slave status, their rights can be lost. Their rights as slaves could be lost. They are temporary and cannot be guaranteed. Slaves could be bought. They could be sold. So you don't have permanent rights. And that is a consequence of being a slave. Why? Because a slave does not abide. They do not remain in the house of the master forever for the reasons that I just gave. But he gives a contrast and says, but in contrast, the son abides forever. And the son in verse 35 is used as a general expression to teach the relationship that a slave has compared to the son of the father with respect to inheritance. So Jesus is saying the son has an abiding, a continuing unchanging relationship with the father, unlike the slave, and they are slaves. So a son remains, a son always remains, even if they are a prodigal one, they still come back to the father. And they still have the same rights of inheritance. And so, for the Jews to attain the status of son, because it is only the status of son that brings freedom, they need to be set free from their slavery to sin and not to wrong. And if they have to be set free, they need to acknowledge their slavery to sin, their sickness. Or else the physician can't help them. Okay. So see this. See what Jesus says. He says, the one who has the status of son, if God gives you the status of son, you are always free with respect to all things pertaining to your relationship with God. It's very important. They have a son's certain Inalienable rights, as the U.S. Constitution will say. Rights that cannot be taken away from them because of their status as sons. But the Jews are claiming inalienable rights by physical paternity from Abraham. And are saying they are sons of Abraham and children of God. And they are denying by that that they are slaves to sin. But Jesus is going to be explicit later on, as we will see, maybe next week or the week after. He's going to be very explicit to them and say, oh, this is what I'm saying. I'm saying your your father is not Abraham. Your father is the devil. Oh, Jesus, be nice. That's not nice. (laughs) So Jesus says, being born in this condition of sin requires some kind of transaction. Some work that has to be done if anyone is to change their status of being bound to the slavery of sin to be called a son who has the right of inheritance. Some work of liberating them has to be done. And now Jesus tells us how one is going to be set free from the slavery of sin and its consequences. Verse 36. Therefore, if the son makes you free you shall be free indeed. It is by the power of the Son of God who has the rights of sonship that anyone shall have the status of sonship before God. That anyone shall be set free from sin. It is he alone who has the power to set one free from the bondage of sin because he has power over sin. It is he who said as we read earlier from Isaiah 61.1. That the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, To proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are. Oppressed. It is the Son who has the power over the devil. Okay? It is the Son who has the power over the devil. So once you are under the power of the Son, there's no more condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in the Son. Because God sees your sonship in the sonship of Christ Jesus. And God says, because you are in Christ, you have been made free from the law of sin and death. And Apostle Paul would echo that teaching again in Galatians 5.1 and say, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Because the yoke of bondage takes you back to slavery. So Christ has indeed set us free from the law of sin and death. But there are many, as we learned earlier, who are trying to bring us back to the law. And they're saying, oh, we do the law to honor God. No, you don't do the law to honor God. You believe in Christ to honor God. But listen to this as I finish. Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5.1, stand fast. And that is resist. Stand like a soldier. It's military language. Stand fast and resist your enemies who are trying to bring you back under the law. Stand in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So what is the Lord teaching? He is saying, all men are born not free. We are bound in shackles and chains by sin. And it doesn't matter if the politicians say we are free. No one is free who is not born again of the spirit of Christ. There's none who has a free will to do anything. The will of man is not free. It is a slave to sin. And so you can only do that which sin commands you to do. The will of man is not free, it is held in slavery to the fear of death, according to the writer of Hebrews. The will of man is not free, it does not even decide what sin to do. Sin decides what the will does. A lot of people don't know that. The will of man is not free, it is not free from God. Only God is free, he alone has a free will. A sinner who is bound to sin cannot come to Christ by their own power of will or of choice or of decision because their will is under the power of sin and sin is greater than our will. So when you came to Christ, it appeared like you chose Christ. But the reality of the matter is it appears like you chose Christ. But you only come to Christ because he's the one who is drawing you. So this is total inability that Jesus is teaching. That is the T in the tulip. If you still remember the tulip from the doctrines of grace. And that is sovereign grace theology. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for setting us free in Christ. For we were slaves to sin. We are under the power of sin and doing its bidding. And we had no way to recover ourselves. And yet the son came and he set his people free. And now, Lord, we pray that we continue in our liberty, that we do not get entangled again under the yoke of slavery, of trying to be good, of trying to get accepted by you because we are already free in Christ. We pray and we thank you for your word, for your doctrine. And I pray that you cause your people to continue to abide in Christ, to continue in the doctrine of Christ, to hold steadfast their confidence to the end. We pray this for all those who name the name of Christ, those whom we have chosen. May you grant hearing to your people for the sake of Christ. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.